Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jack Endy, who is a professor of medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the past president of the American College of Physicians and series editor for the seven-volume set, Teaching Medicine. Today, we will explore the theory and practice of teaching academic medicine and how students and preceptors can improve their clinical interactions. Jack, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure, Chase. Thank you for having me. You have a lot of awards, a lot of credentials. You've, you've really edited and authored one of the books in the seven-volume series on teaching medicine. So just a little bit for the audience, what is your background in education? Well, I um, grew up in New York City, going to schools with romantic names like PS89 and junior high school 135, etc., But for some reason, Chase, I've always been fascinated by the process. I've always regarded my teachers as role models and examples of people that I would love to become. So I think with that, I've always fancied teaching. And in medicine, one really has an opportunity from the very beginning to become a teacher because we work in teams. We have residents teaching interns, interns teaching students, attendings, teaching residents, and and so forth. So there's a lot of that kind of in on. But I also should point out that it's at least the kind of teaching that has always fascinated me and accounted for a considerable portion of my career is the informal, impromptu teaching rather than curricular-driven lectures, if you will. So with all of that, it just may be some inevitable reasons It's been a good fit. That's great. So like you said, there are so many different teaching opportunities in medicine, and it's just always been this sort of, I don't know if we can use a comparison of journeyman apprenticeship type of model and intermixed with since the French school and having this really didactic classroom sort of setting. But it seems like, especially in community settings, there's a lot less organization and structure for precepting for clinical medicine. And since we, especially the first season of the show, really focused on teaching models in clinical medicine, the one-minute preceptor model in general. And I know you have a lot of mentorship experiences in, in just such a wide range of clinical scenarios, institutions, etc. Are there any particular lessons that you've learned from instructors that you've taught or any like key takeaways that you found very moving, very inspirational? Yes, I've, I've been lucky. I've had some wonderful instructors during uh, my early years. And what I think I take away from them is almost all have an overarching theme of what they want to accomplish as teachers. These themes can be different. I've been using the term organizing vision. My instructors have always seemed to know which direction they're going in their teaching, and their values are so apparent, putting the patient first, of doing as much as you can at the bedside, of trying to really connect and engage with the learners, giving them 
methods, if not reams of facts, to enable them to solve problems. Those are the takeaways that I've tried to carry with me from some of my instructors in the past. I like that organizing vision, and I think we want to come back to that a little bit more when we get to more questions regarding instructors and preceptors in clinical education, in clinical medicine. So for students maybe currently in or about to enter the clinical setting, there are a lot of different student struggles that can arise in clinical medicine. And where are some of the spots that you see a lot of students struggle in? Well, I think there is an abrupt transition. It's becoming less abrupt in in modern times as we try to introduce the student earlier on in uh, his or her medical school journey to the clinical environment. But still, the bell really does sound when you leave the classroom during the preclinical years and enter the hospital rotations. And when you do that, suddenly the structure has changed and, in fact, The structure is almost not apparent. Students just don't know what's expected of them. They don't know what to do. They don't understand how they're going to be evaluated, which is very anxiety-provoking these days because um, one of the, if I could uh, be the czar of medical education, I would love to make it all pass-fail. I cannot do that. I'm not sure it would be a good idea to do that. But there's so much anxiety about evaluation and grades. And when you couple that with the lack of perceived structure, you really find a lot of students at sea, sort of lost when they first enter the clinical environment. I definitely agree. I felt the exact same way when I was doing my clinical rotations, and there was uh, very little understanding of the expectations. There's very little structure, very little guidance for us. And my school is quite small, so it probably was even more predominant or more noticeable there than maybe a larger institution. But there have to be some better ways that students can prepare. And what are some of the ways that maybe a student can better prepare for these scenarios and become better learners? Well, um, it's a partnership between the students and the teachers. I think the students need to appreciate that the world has changed for them and that they're no longer out there just to pass examinations and to earn grades, but they have taken a big step. And guess what? The most important entity in this whole enterprise is the patient. And students need to really go in there with the attitude that I'm here not to impress my attending but I'm here to be a benefit to my patient. I'm also here to learn so that I could be a benefit to future patients, including a time when I'll be working independently. So they really have to change their focus from getting that uh, examination grade to being as helpful as they can in the uh, clinical arena while learning as much as they can. The attendings have a real responsibility here. That is the preceptors, the teachers, preceptors for outpatient, attendings for inpatient. And their responsibility really should center around orientation. Yes, it is unstructured, but it's not entirely free form. There are specific expectations that faculty have for the students, and those need to be made explicit. 
you can't just assume that because you're thinking of what a student should do, the student is thinking the same thing. You owe it to the student to sit down at the very beginning and have a real in-depth orientation with specifics. I'd like my presentations done this way. I would like you to do the uh, write-ups that way. I'd like you to interact with the team and still another way. Here's what I'm hoping you'll get out of this rotation. And that orientation really can be very important in setting the tone for how we're going to interact. There'll be a lot of feedback. I'm going to be uh, as critical as I should be to make sure that you're doing things right. Please, please, let's get past the grades and the evaluation. Let's join together and work on how we can make you the best doctor you can be. I love that. And the emphasis should, as we all know, be on patient care. But with these different assessments, with the grades, like you said, if everything was pass-fail, it would reduce the stress so much on students. We have these disconjointed, seemingly, methods of assessing students based on their many different ways of, of academic performance. And maybe that's part of the reason that the step one was recently announced to being changed to pass and fail. And maybe if they did that a little bit more for the clinical setting, then students could just focus on the patients, on their clinical learning skills and not these assessments that might not actually be validated for for patient care or for the ultimate outcomes that we really are looking to improve. That's right, Chase. I, I like to, I rely a good deal on the coaching model. I think it's probably more a metaphor than a model. When you think about how a football coach, the uh, special teams coach, if you will, will be working with his field goal kicker to try to get him to uh, kick a long and accurate field goal, he's really not that interested in the success of the field goal kicker. He wants to put those three points on the board. He wants to win the game. He wants to make the patient better. And the kicker, the, the journeyman kicker, is you know, appreciates that the coach, the coach's motivation is not to evaluate him, but to get those three points. So everybody's on the same page. Everybody, no pun intended, has the same goal. And if we could import some of that relationship into clinical teaching of both the attending and the student having the same goal in mind, and, and let's get the job done. At that point, it becomes, you know, it becomes a wonderful enterprise. Everybody's working together. Nobody benefits more than the patient. And we're all in this together. And when you can convey that sort of overall approach to your rounding team, then I think you've really moved the ball forward, if you will. I like it. it. Focusing on the goal, and there might be multiple pathways to that goal. And if you restrict the learner to just one pathway, that might not be the best for them. It might not be the most productive way to and to reach that outcome that you're looking for. So you've written about this organizing vision for clinical teaching in the past, and you mentioned it earlier in the interview. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means to you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not original. I think I've learned it from Stephen Brookfield, who's a master uh, non-medical teacher at uh, Columbia Teachers College, and the other people uh, have in non-medical education have used the concept as well. It acknowledges that in an impromptu, unscripted, 
complicated environment, like the inpatient service, for example. Teaching will be informal, it will be impromptu, but it shouldn't be entirely without structure. That's why, Chase, your, your previous shows on the one-minute preceptor, I think, makes that point very clearly, that there should be some kind of structure. The teacher should have something that he or she holds as important and wants to accomplish. And for me, my organizing vision is I want to empower the students to help the patients that they have in front of them now and the patients that they will be seeing in in the future. And that's my organizing vision. My organizing vision is not teach the student as many facts as they can remember. It's not demonstrate how much I know or how the depth to which I could go in discussing an illness. It's all about empowering the student. So everything I try to accomplish as a teacher is based upon that organizing vision. Each of us should have our own organizing vision. It's something that's personal, something that you have to develop on your own, and it's something that I believe we should all revisit each time we begin a rotation on the wards. And then it's also a good way to evaluate your performance as a teacher. Because, Chase, one of the real problems, and maybe there's another podcast here for the future, but teachers have a difficult time getting true evaluation, accurate, objective evaluation of their skills and success as a teacher. They rely upon students' comments, and the students are more often than not so kind and and really don't give you much uh, much specific that will enable improvement. But with an organizing vision, if I know what I hope to accomplish, I could walk away from rounds, for example, when rounds are over, and ask myself, to what extent did I fulfill my organizing vision today? I could do much more accurate self-assessment, which I hope makes me better tomorrow. Okay. This sounds kind of like a topic I bring up on the other show, The Medical Anemonist, where we focus on the process, not the product. So we focus on teaching you how to learn or learning how to learn, not on the content that you need to know. The content's going to keep changing. And it sounds to me sort of similar here where the preceptor can focus on making sure the student knows how to get to the end goal, whatever way is best for them, and just sort of guiding them there, but not focusing strictly on certain content or informational details. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's very important. I think that's what Sir William Oshler was talking about in his famous comment. The problem with students is they try to learn too much. The problem with teachers is they try to teach too much. Oshler says, teach them methods and then give them patience to learn from. So try to keep, you know, empower them, give them a method. Don't try to overwhelm with facts. That's perfect. And there are, well, obviously so many challenges to teaching in the clinical setting. And like you mentioned, the analysis that preceptor will receive from the student evaluations might not be the best or the most helpful. What are some of the larger challenges, do you think, the challenging aspects, I would say, of clinical teaching? Yeah. Well, first of all, you will often find yourself in areas, content areas that you may not be familiar with. 
that's certainly is the case in my field, which is general internal medicine, where we do inpatient rounds on a service that may have cardiac and gastrointestinal and infectious disease and psychosocial issues and psychiatric issues. It's quite different than only restricting yourself to an area in which you have in-depth expertise. So the challenge is that the content is very broad. That's one. The other is that the learners are at different levels, the student versus the intern versus the resident. How do you make it interesting and, and engaging for all of them? And we certainly can talk about that. And then also the environment itself. This is not the organized classroom in which everybody is sitting down or these days they may not be in the classroom, but perhaps they're watching this uh, on their computers in a synchronous way. But in any case, you start and you stop and you have slides and you have a, a curriculum and you have a content outline. My gosh, you go onto the wards and patients are presented and then there's a major distraction of somebody's pager goes off and then the patient in the next room becomes acutely ill and, and deteriorates. And then there's the patient, him or herself, who may or may not be able to cooperate with what you're trying to accomplish at the bedside. All of this, you know, this is live theater. This really is is live theater. And uh, that's, I think, those are some of the important challenges. It's also, but it's fun. It's fun. It's, it's sort of, it's not a barrier. It's a challenge. And it's the kind of thing that good teachers are able to overcome. But they also, it, it's, it's humbling, and you have to appreciate that you're not going to do a perfect performance each and every time because it is so challenging. Yeah, I picture it much more being like an episode of ER where you might be going about your day and then all of a sudden something happens, a new patient comes in that's in serious distress or or maybe something not even patient-related could be administrative-related and your day can be shifted so violently, I guess, in certain scenarios and being adaptive as an instructor, as a preceptor to this. And and like you said, you have all these different classes of students. You have residents, you have older medical students, you have younger medical students as far as uh, how many years they've already practiced. And this is very challenging for some to navigate, as I would assume, especially for newer preceptors and learning that adaptive ability and, and learning how to to also engage all of these different students that are following you around. Are there any recommendations you have for that, for teaching to both this resident you have right next to you on one side, but also this first or second year medical student on the other side? Yeah, the uh, teaching learners at different levels always comes up as, as one of the challenges in clinical teaching. And I tend to handle it as, as follows. First of all, my particular, the, not area of expertise, but one of my goals for teaching is to emphasize the importance of bedside diagnosis and physical exam. And lucky me, Chase, nobody's really good at that, (laughs) including the most advanced residents. So everybody (laughs) has a lot to learn about how to listen to the heart and how to uh, appreciate the importance of lung sounds in the neurologic exam. That's a uh, top aspect of medicine that most people at all levels are interested in. But that aside, I do tend to focus my teaching on the student. They're the paying customer, if you will. They often do not get as much attention as they should. 
So I'll make sure that the student is very much involved. But then I'll speak with the interns and residents afterwards. And we can even talk about what we talked, what I talked about with the student or what the student's comments were. And we'll try to, you know, bring everybody on board and be focused on the, on the student's education. The residents like that. They want to become good teachers themselves. And if you can bring them into the enterprise, either right then and there or afterward, I think they'll come away uh, feeling that they've gotten something of value because you can often learn a lot in analyzing what it is about an illness, asthma, for example, that students may find challenging. And this will enable the resident when he or she is, is working with students with a patient with asthma to become a more effective teacher. So we do a little teacher training on rounds, and I think the residents benefit from that. Okay, so I guess in a way, the attendees teach the residents, the residents teach the older med students, the older med students teach the younger med students, then it divvies up, it, it uh, splits up the time constraints or the responsibilities from just being on one person, the attendee, to everyone a little bit. And everyone learns by teaching, learns by doing, learns in a multitude of hands-on and, and more yeah. mentorship-guided ways. The other um, way to handle this challenge of learners at different levels is to try to make one's rounds or one's uh, precepting time in the office less pedagogic and more patient-focused. Because here again, just like the physical exam, everybody resonates with the goal of helping the patient. And if you can really direct what you're talking about to what the patient needs, then I think you've moved away from pedagogy to clinical medicine. And that appeals to all. Even the most senior resident will appreciate the opportunity to see a clinician, a clinician with some seniority, interacting directly with a patient. And that those are universal lessons, and they tend not to sort themselves out by the learner's levels. Interesting. So would you say, I would kind of assume in other settings anyway, that teaching the student why I'm teaching this material, so sort of explaining the pedagogy in a way, usually benefits, at least in the classroom setting. Would you say that's true or not true, or it's kind of mixed in the clinical setting? It is mixed, but the direction I think you're heading in is emphasizing the importance of methods, that you want to bestow upon your learners a method to deal with the patient who comes in with anemia, a method or an approach to the patient with shortness of breath. Likewise, a, uh, a way to approach the patient who presents with chest pain. And I will really flag the importance of methods on rounds. And in a sense, I will reveal, if you will, my system for teaching that I'm much more interested that you have a method to approach this problem rather than that you know all the facts about it. And I, it's perfectly fine to underscore and to make explicit that we're talking here about the importance of having a method. That's what Osler said, teach them methods and give them patience to learn. So we do that a lot on rounds. And that is an example of flagging one's own system of teaching. Okay, I got it. I think I understand that better now. 
And with these methods being one technique to really educate the learners and help them become better physicians, are there other techniques as well for maybe encouraging more student engagement, making sure they're really present and understanding what's going on? Absolutely. We should never forget that there's a difference between teaching and learning. It's like mailing a letter or sending an email. You may know when you put it in the mailbox or when you hit the send button, but was it received? And when it was received, was it understood? So we really do need to appreciate that we're in this business to encourage learning rather than just to perform masterful teaching. And in order for the learning to happen, the student must be engaged. This should not be, uh, we know from educational theory and other fields, the importance of active learning rather than passive learning, just sitting back and letting things wash over you. The student really has to get engaged. They have to solve problems. They have to be thinking. They have to be working with the material and coming up with a way that they can use when they encounter a similar problem again. So how do you engage your learners? Well, one is the very human connection. And as you know, we're, uh, we are making this podcast during the COVID-19 pandemic where the uh, mantra is social distancing. I hope we can get through this as quickly as possible because clinical teaching is not about social distancing. It's about reaching out and touching somebody. Metaphorically, of course, but you really have to be a, you have to have a connection with your students. If you don't have that connection, then you are not taking advantage of the wonderful opportunity that clinical bedside teachers have versus the preclinical teachers who stand up on the podium and lecture. So how do you do that? Well, get to know your student well, learn their names, address them by names. Anytime you could say, Alice, what do you think? That is such a, um, so helpful in, in establishing the connection, using names, walking around, varying the way people are, you know, standing around, knowing something about the, your students and knowing what's important to them. Uh, those are all important steps in establishing that connection. The other important step is to understand and, and you have to do this in real time to actually decipher, to figure out where the learner is at that moment in understanding this material. There's a wonderful teacher from Harvard, again, a non-medical teacher, C. Roland Christensen, who pioneered the case study method at Harvard Business School. Chris liked to say that always try to find out where your students are. That's where learning begins. So how do you do that? You do that by asking questions, general questions, such as, what's your approach to acute renal failure? Do you have a method to figure out the cause of hyponatremia? And questions like that enable you to sit back and hear how the student thinks about that clinical good sense of how much they know at the moment. What's their level of understanding? And then you can take it from there. The student who has no method, you must supply them with a method. And the student who has a method is ready to get, go into greater depth and learn about more different specific examples. So the, the connecting has a human aspect to it, but also an intellectual aspect of learning where 
figuring out where students are in their understanding of the of a clinical problem and organizing your teaching around that. So it sounds like this is something that really starts off with, like you said earlier, the setting the expectations, making sure that the student knows what to expect during your clinical rotation and what they are going to be responsible for versus what you're going to be. And then keeping that constant level of communication with them so that you know where they are academically. And then based on those preset expectations and understanding their knowledge base, you can really focus certain techniques that are going to be more specific to them. Yes. And I guess one final aspect is to never underestimate the importance of the relationship. We spoke earlier about the coach relationship, the coach-player relationship, one that enables the coach to provide critique, suggestions, move your foot this way or move your archer back that way. If you have a coaching relationship, a trusting coaching relationship with your learner, then you can make comments. You don't always have to provide positive feedback. You can correct mistakes. You can change what they're doing. And the student will appreciate that you're not doing it as part of their evaluation, but as part of your commitment to making them the best possible physician that they could be. And when you have a relationship like that, my gosh, it becomes so much fun. And you, to a large extent, have moved, as we said, more into the pass-fail realm than the high-pass honors realm. And that's an interesting topic to bring up, the high pass and the, I guess you could say, like the gunner level to some degree. Are there certain things that maybe instructors should focus on that are considered, quote unquote, high yield materials for students? Or how would they even know what to base that off of? Is it more based on our exams, for instance, or based on the clinical setting or a mixture? Or how do you navigate that? How do I, um, because I do at the end of the day have to make recommendations or at least submit evaluations of students. And I base it upon their, to a large extent, the way they are able to present the patients, the way they're able to demonstrate their understanding of the clinical problem, how much additional material and how much additional effort they bring to rounds each day, and also their level of engagement. Do they come across as somebody who's genuinely interested in helping the patient, who asks questions not to, not to demonstrate their knowledge, but to figure out what more we could do for a particular patient? Those are the kinds of things that many attendings look for when they have that very challenging piece of paper in front of them, the, uh, the evaluation. And then there's one more topic that really relates strongly to this sort of intermixture of the clinical setting, the patient care, and also the student learning. And I know you've discussed this in the past, and that's the iron triangle of patient care, student learning, and the time constraints that we often have based on our facilities or insurance needs or anything to that degree. How would a preceptor navigate this iron triangle? Well, first, Chase, I'm very much aware of that triangle. It's it's something we face all the time and I'm reminded of a sign I uh, saw in a print shop where one goes to have prints and f- made and, f- and framing of pictures made. And the sign says, we could make it fast, we could make it cheap, or we could make it good. Pick two. But in, uh, in medicine and in, in clinical teaching, you can't. 
you can't pay to. You have to teach the student. You definitely are there to take care of the patient. And you have to do all of this in a, efficiently with an eye on the clock. So no easy answers here. Uh, but somehow just being aware that you're being pulled in these three important directions um, helps you uh, somehow negotiate and, and navigate the iron triangle. Obviously, if we are forced to prioritize, there's nothing that can take precedence over the patient's welfare. And that uh, the students and the residents aside, if you see that things are not going well with the patient, then the learning becomes secondary and patient care comes first. And time is always a challenge. That's probably one of the reasons why I uh, enjoy inpatient teaching because you, ha you do have more time. You have a lot of patients to see, but you're not seeing patients every 15 or 20 minutes. So somehow with uh, our priorities kept straight and our focus on the patient, I think we're able to uh, manage all of this. And we should never forget that perhaps the most important lessons that the students learn are the ones that they see demonstrated with the clinician and the patient. So when, you're, when you have the patient first and you're focused entirely on what they need, you have been, and you do that in the presence of students and residents, well, you really are fulfilling a very important aspect of teaching. You know, role modeling is central to medical education, and I think it's something that we should never forget about. Agreed. I've heard that in business and real estate, pick two of the three, but medicine has to, by the order of what it takes care of the patient, be at a higher standard. And it's just very difficult for some scenarios and some settings, possibly like you mentioned, the difference in inpatient and outpatient, whereas outpatient has more time constraints usually to uh, navigate these three things. So it's an interesting conundrum that I guess every preceptor has to sort of navigate and figure out on their own. And let's not forget that teaching, particularly teaching on the inpatient service, is not restricted to sitting around the conference room in front of a blackboard. When you are out on the floor taking care of a patient, talking with a patient, having genuine, not pedagogic conversations, but real clinically driven conversations about what we think is going on and what we should do, that's teaching. And in fact, that may be even more effective than the uh, little mini lectures that are delivered in the conference room. That's a good point too. As we start to wrap up here, just had a few more questions for you. One, what is the biggest change that you hope to see in academic or clinical medicine in the next couple of years? I hope that we can become more patient-focused and more personalized and more precise. I think you know, one of the exciting directions that medicine is going in is precision medicine, where we appreciate that one size does not fit all, that patients respond differently to certain drugs, that the disease manifests itself differently in different patients for a whole host of reasons, including socioeconomic reasons. And I would like to see that kind of approach of personalized, patient-focused care be the direction that medicine moves in. Yes, we should have guidelines. They're always helpful, but they're a starting point. And beyond the guidelines, we need to get into more precision and more personalized care. And wouldn't that be a wonderful lesson to convey to students? 
that they have to know what should happen, but they also have to know what's happening in that patient. You know, I think it's once it's once again Osler who said, good doctors take care of diseases, great doctors take care of patients. That was actually going to lead into my second question as you brought up Osler so many times at this point. Is there any particular reason that you find his advice so profound over the ages? Oh my gosh, he, um, he was an amazing individual. And uh, the more one learns about Osler and his life and how he performed as a clinician and as a teacher, you just have to believe that he was uh, a one-in-a-century kind of individual. And uh, I always I like to bring up Osler on rounds. Whenever I, I tell the students, when they examine the patient, from every time they examine the heart from the left side, Osler spins in his grave. So we, uh, we make him a part of our rounds. Uh, we, we bring him up. I think he is the quintessential role model. And as we move forward in medicine, we should not forget about some of the giants of the past. Good point. Good point. Last question regarding preceptors is that you've worked with a lot of young preceptors or just starting off. And do you have any particular advice for those maybe looking to to become preceptors? Or what do you give your young preceptors to really make them successful at clinical instruction? Well, I do talk about the organizing vision. And I do encourage people to have a overarching sense of what they hope to accomplish as a teacher, how they're going to organize their rounds, their time in the office. And then as I move more towards specific recommendations, I'll return to this notion of bedside exam. I think teachers do have to have real expertise if they hope to be effective as preceptors and as attendings. And one area that is so uh, available, if you will, is expertise in physical examination and bedside diagnosis. Every patient has heart sounds and every patient has breath sounds and every patient uh, has jugular venous pulse. Can't always see it, but trust me, it's, it is there. And if you get really good at this, and you can get good at this by taking classes, by reading, there's so many opportunities to learn bedside diagnosis available now uh, through electronic media. This is something that you could demonstrate on rounds and in the office. And I can assure young faculty that it will be well received. So I emphasize understanding what you're doing. And I also will encourage people to really, really get good at physical diagnosis. Great last words. I really think those are going to be very useful for audience. And I know the physical exam is something that a lot of physicians, especially early on in med students, struggle with. So using some of these resources could be very helpful. Maybe I can find some of them and put them in the show notes for this episode. Dr. Jack Endy, I want to thank you again so much for coming on the show and with some of your great advice. Maybe your name will go down in history like William Osler. <laughs> I cannot imagine that, that happening. But uh, Chase, thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to talk about these things. And I just hope that we can all get back to doing clinical teaching because it is where doctors are made and ultimately where patients will benefit as well. Thank you.